This is an exciting day because we've got a t-shirt to give away. Isn't that exciting? Woo! Four of you hope to get a t-shirt. That's great. Uh, yeah, so before you think we're resulting, or, uh, resorting to minor league uh, tactics here to get attention and, uh, you know, rally support for Jesus, let me explain why the t-shirt's important. Uh, this one's a youth medium, so anybody out there who's a youth medium might want this. Maybe start thinking about, about that, because I'm going to ask for hands in a second. Uh, but yesterday we had a fantastic event. We had a walk for hope. And uh, this was to raise some support and money for the local children's shelter in northwest Arkansas and to help them launch Hope Academy, which is a school that will specialize in serving children that have lived through severe trauma. And it's a very unique kind of school. There's none in the state of Arkansas. There's very few in the nation. And we're going to have one of the first ones right here in northwest Arkansas. So, yeah, you can celebrate that. Yeah, we're, we're people that celebrate. That's okay. Uh, and so, yesterday we had uh, some walkers that came out to walk a mile in the Walk for Hope. Our youngest was one year old. Uh, and that's just impressive that she's even like taking some steps, you know, and doing that. She's walking for hope. And our oldest was 90 years old. And that's impressive that they, that they were out there walking for hope too. Uh, over $13,000 were raised to go towards this school. So that's worth celebrating too. So that's really cool. And I'm going to give away this t-shirt. And then we're going to give away all the rest of the t-shirts on that table back there for five bucks. So see how that works, right? Uh, and that money will go straight to the school too. So who wears a youth medium? Would like, oh, I saw that hand first way back there. Okay, you want to get this? Come on up here. You can, you can come get this. It's okay. It's church. We don't mind little interruptions. This is just part of what we do. Come on and get this T-shirt. All right, here you go. Enjoy it. All right, you're welcome. Okay, everybody, let's just thank God for all the good he's doing through the efforts of his people. Um, and let's commit together to pray for the children in the shelter and for those who will attend the school. What a wonderful season of the year. We get to participate in the Walk for Hope. It's our mission season. We get to hear stories and pray about people doing international missions work for Jesus and for the kingdom of God. We have a guest from Eastern European Missions here today to teach our class, and we get to have lunch with him. Uh, it's just a great day. So as we dive into this scripture, I would like to offer a word of prayer, and I'd ask if you would pray with me. Let's bow our heads, close our eyes, and approach our Father. Father in heaven and right here near us because you are always near your people and in the hearts of your people, uh, we hallow and honor your name. Uh, we ask that your kingdom would come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let that show up through our efforts to help the school. Let that show up in our efforts to help international missions and let it show up in any way that you prefer, because this is your plan and your kingdom, Holy Father. And we pray that today you would give us what we need uh, to eat and sustain our lives. And we pray that you would forgive us as we also forgive others for the wrongs that are done to us. And we pray, Father, that you would not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil of every kind. And as we pray these things, we are listening to you, Father, for your direction, for your help, for your leading, for the promptings both internal in our hearts, uh, external through the scriptures, 
and external through the words of your people that we surround ourselves with for some help in how to live out our spiritual lives and how to worship you and how to serve your kingdom in this world. Please guide us. And it's in the name of Jesus that we offer this prayer. Jesus who put on flesh and blood and walked and lived and breathed and ate like we do so that he could perfectly understand us. And he knows what it's like day in and out to live in a world with brokenness and darkness and light and hope and how to survive and live spiritually in it. It's in the name of that Jesus, the Jesus that you perfectly revealed yourself through, that we pray. And together we all say, Amen. So today we get to look at Jesus as he goes out to pray in a lonely place in Mark chapter 1. And this is going to conclude the day in the life of Jesus that we find embedded in Mark chapter 1. And I think of this story about Jesus praying as an opportunity to watch Jesus and see what he's doing. And today we're going to try to look at him through a few different vantage points, a few windows. If you can imagine, maybe you've been at a museum that has a three-dimensional display that you can walk around and see from different angles. Not too long ago, I was up uh, in Missouri at the big Bass Pro Shop uh, temple there, and they have um, this great wildlife museum and a beautiful aquarium. I recommend that you go. Take your family and friends. It is a really neat aquarium. And they have these wonderful tanks where you can be completely surrounded on almost all sides by the glass tanks and the fish are going around you and above you. They have other displays where they're in a tank. You get to go around and you can see them from one angle and from another angle. And it is a wonderful view into the world of fish. Well, at least fish that live in tanks. And these particular fish still have plants to swim around and they have uh, little places they can go hide under rocks. You've seen these kind of aquariums, haven't you? And it's wonderful when you can get two or three different angles around an environment and see what's really going on in there. It makes you feel like you've lived the life of a fish for a little while. So today we want to take a couple of angles on Jesus through this text of Scripture, and we want to try to see what was going on in his day. So this is one of the windows. What was going on in Jesus' day that would help us understand these verses at the end of his day? Another window we're going to look through briefly this morning is what was going on in Jesus' spiritual world. Okay, So we're going to take a step around the story and look through the window of what are the invisible things happening, the spiritual things happening in Jesus' day uh, that might give us some information about the story. And then the third window, the last one, is going to be the literary context of Mark. See, when Mark puts these stories in order, it's like he stepped around the fish tank to another side of it, and he knew, or the Holy Spirit told him, or however this worked out, that some others were going to tell the stories of Jesus from a particular angle. Matthew was going to tell it from this Jewish perspective. Luke is going to write about Jesus from a more 
explain it to the Greeks' perspective. Uh, John is going to do this deep theological telling of Jesus. Mark is giving you this politically, religiously subversive, fast-paced, punchy uh, telling of Jesus, and a very mysterious one, too. And when Mark is giving his, his version here of, of the events of Jesus' life, it's just as true. All these, all these tellings are true, but they're showing us some of their personal angle on it. What, what did they see in his life? And Mark, in particular, has a literary context, a flow to his book, and we're going to look through that window. Okay, so there's our windows, three windows. So here we go. The first window is what was going on in Jesus' day. Remember uh, that this was a Sabbath day. It was a Sabbath day. So it's Saturday. Last week I described briefly what a Sabbath day in Jesus' age might have been like. They would go to worship and they would go home. They would eat food they had prepared ahead of time. They weren't to cook and prepare on that day. It was meant to be a day of listening to God and a day of spending time with family, eating around the table, seeing each other face to face and reconnecting with God and family and friends. So as we look at this day in the life of Jesus through that window, is that what Sabbath was like for Jesus on this day? Was it a day of rest? Was it a day of reconnecting with family and friends? And in part, we might say yes, because in the passage before this, we see him eating at the house of Simon and Andrew, but there are distractions. When he eats at the house of Simon and Andrew, uh, the mother-in-law of Simon is sick, and he heals her. He takes her by the hand and helps her up. So he's still working. He's been called upon to perform some of his priestly, prophetic, Messiah duties in the middle of Sabbath day. Earlier in the day, when he was at worship, he was called upon in a big way. Earlier in the day, when he was in worship, there was a demon-possessed man in the worship setting who cries out, he's giving away Jesus' identity ahead of time here, and he seems to be trying to control Jesus, and Jesus has this struggle with this dark power that's taken residence in a person and has to do an exorcism, so he's got to face down the darkness. It doesn't sound like this was a particularly restful Sabbath for Jesus. And plus, speaking from my position, where each Sunday I get to look at all of your beautiful faces I can say that the day of worship isn't always particularly restful for the people who are doing the speaking. And my job isn't any harder than any of yours. You have hard jobs. Uh, it's just that for people that do my job, there's two days a week where uh, we face the darkness. And you're, you think, you think I'm going to say Sunday morning and Wednesday night, but that's not what I'm going to say. There's two times a week that we face the darkness. One of my preacher friends who's been in this a lot longer than me tells the stories about when he used to preach full-time for a local congregation for over a decade, and the worst day of his week was Sunday night when church was over. He would go home and fall into deep depression, face a lot of darkness. 
because he knew he could never live up to the gospel that he had been preaching that, that morning and that day. He knew he wasn't worthy, and it crushed him. For me, there have been many times where Saturday night is when I face the darkness because I know that by the next morning I'm given a responsibility to share eternal truths that make a difference in people's lives now and their souls forever and it needs to be true to scripture and it needs to engage the imagination and what if people begin to just get bored with me or bored with church and all of these things that could happen and I worry about what I'm going to say and I'm being accused in my soul by the enemy you're not up to this you won't be able to pull it off again they're going to start to see through you. And this is what Jesus is facing on a Sabbath day when he's teaching. He's facing the regular accusations that humans always face when they try to do something for the kingdom of God. He's facing the accusations that you feel when you try to serve in church through teaching uh, students and you feel like they just don't connect with you and you're from a different generation and you don't know if they even like you and the enemy starts accusing you. This is the way that it feels for you when you try to put together a service event and not as many people show up as you expected and you think, I thought we had a mandate from the Holy Spirit here. I thought we had a beautiful vision, a goal, and the people didn't think so. This is what it feels like for our elders whenever they see someone get disappointed with a tradition in church or a, a point of opinion in church and cause you know, a real ruckus and a rift in the church and they are just praying for unity and for spiritual growth and they're wondering, are we good at being elders? Why can't we keep the people motivated? Why can't we keep them going the same direction? These are the accusations that the enemy tries to lodge in your heart and they're barbed arrows. They sink deep and they hurt to extract. And this is what Jesus is facing on his long Sabbath day. Teaching and preaching, demonic opposition. He goes to rest with family and friends at home and even there there's work to do. And then as if that wasn't enough, he spends the whole second shift, the whole evening, healing people that come to his door crowds flooding the door and by the time they go home Jesus must be spiritually and physically worn out now you've heard this passage about Jesus taught before no doubt Jesus goes off into the wilderness to pray and probably the point you've heard from this reading is and you should pray too what is the purpose of this text you should pray, and you should pray more. Now, what happens to the heart of a person when they hear, you ought to pray as much as Jesus? You ought to pray more. You ought to have better prayers. You ought to have longer prayers. You ought to have deeper prayers. You ought to have more spiritual prayers. All of this burden of how good your prayer life ought to be, and what does that do to us? who know our prayer lives are weak and our prayer lives are sometimes shallow and our prayer times are often completely forgotten because we get busy. 
It has the potential for the enemy to lodge even more darts deeply into our heart and to tell you, see how lousy you are at being a Christian? And even sometimes, maybe there have been sermons that actually made that point. See how lousy you are as a Christian, right? But that's not our point today. Now, maybe you should pray more. But the question is, what from this story about Jesus might be a help to you? Why do we face so many problems when we try to pray? What's going on in this story of Jesus that might help us overcome some bad theology about praying? Can we have bad theology about praying? I think we do. We have some theology sometimes in places that says you shouldn't read prayers that have been written down ahead of time. That would be to use empty words and just to repeat words. And God doesn't want that. Well, Jesus gave us a prayer that was pretty much laid out ahead of time. And he said, when you pray, pray like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. It's called the Our Father or the Lord's Prayer. Jesus, as far as we can tell, as a good Jew, probably prayed a prayer called the Shema every day. And probably another prayer called the Kaddish every day. Jesus didn't seem to think that there was this theology against praying memorized prayers, but they can become empty sometimes. Uh, in one place, we're warned by Jesus not to use too many words when we pray, so maybe we, our theology says don't pray too long, right? But Jesus prayed all night in Gethsemane. He prayed all night on a mountaintop. He prayed, it seems like, all night in this situation. What did he do for the 40 days in the wilderness? Walk around and skip rocks on the Sea of Galilee? You know, like, he, he probably spent a lot of time in prayer. Jesus spent a lot of time in prayer. But then what do you pray? Do you just say over and over and over again uh, the request that's on your mind right now? Do you just say over and over again, oh, God, I really am sorry, forgive me, forgive me, forgive me, and just keep saying it over and over again? It seems like some of those ways of praying might spiral you down into guilt and depression or maybe just boredom we need a little bit of direction so we've got a point and we've got a problem when Jesus is confronted with a long wearying day he prays and we don't know how to do it and we feel guilty about it we want more of it. We'd like that close relationship with God. So let's look through a second window. Second windows, we're moving around the fish tank is the spiritual context of Jesus' day. Okay. Let's talk about Sabbath again. Just briefly and its purpose. Because on this long wearying day, Jesus has not had a chance to truly be at rest, Sabbath has been thwarted. You see, Jesus won the victory over that demonic power in the worship assembly. It tries to control his story, and he just simply says, be quiet, get out, and Jesus wins. Because when Jesus speaks, praise God, Jesus wins. Amen? Amen? When Jesus says, be still, the storm stops. 
When he says, get up and walk, lame people's bones knit back together and they run and jump like children. When Jesus says, be quiet, get out, demons run. It's good news. But the demon has a sinister plan. I don't have to beat him in a head-on contest of strength at church to win. All I have to do is ruin his Sabbath day. I've got all of these other afflicted people sick with cancers and lame and people who have demons and I'm going to send all of them to his door. Peter's mom isn't going to be able to serve them any food and bring stuff out of the pantry because she's down sick. We're going to just throw person after person after person at Jesus all day long, wear him down, stress him out, and take away the joy of his Sabbath. Its purpose was for people to have rest with God. And the demon's sneaky little plan is we'll put him to work doing really good things and he won't know it, but he won't be getting any rest. Wow. The second spiritual context insight as we look through that window is the misdirection that this demonic dark influence does in the heart of the people who are looking at Jesus. All of these people who are sick and full of their burdens and their cares can see that this is a healer and they want that because that's good to have healing. But what they're being blinded to because of their physical needs is that here is the person who can forgive sins, who can heal systemic wrongs, here is the person that can bring healing to the world. Who could mend relationships. Who can bring hope. And all they can see in him in that moment is here is a healer. And I need to get front in line. I need a good ticket. You know. Hold my spot. I'm bringing three more ants that really need to see him. Right. They're loading all the cousins in the wagon and bringing them over, right? Like, hold my spot in line so they can be healed by Jesus. It's a little bit of demonic misdirection so that the people are confused about why Jesus has come. And people are confused about why Jesus has come to this day. We so often mistake that the spiritual life is about getting our needs met. A lot of people even preach that if you're really spiritual and faithful that God is just going to pour luxury and wealth into your life and heal all your problems. And if the life of Jesus teaches us anything about the spiritual journey, it is that God will not solve all your problems. Not everyone will like you. Some people are going to curse your name and spit at you. And if we're servants of the master, why would we think we're above that kind of treatment? Jesus said that himself, didn't he? So this demon is doing misdirections from all these angles. Get Jesus busy, get the people confused about why he's here. And we can even see that in this text today because when Simon and his companions come to look for Jesus early the next morning, they found him. They probably found him out there sitting in the cold. Maybe Jesus left his shoes at home because he, he snuck out of the house at night and he didn't want to wake anybody up. I've been wondering why this Jesus doesn't have 
shoes on. That's my best guess right now. Uh, maybe he has wrapped himself in a cloak against the cold night desert air. They find Jesus out here in the wilderness and they say to him, everyone is looking for you. And there's so much hope and a little bit of deception in that statement, right? We want, when we preach about Jesus and as a church right here on Walton Boulevard in Bentonville, Arkansas, I mean, we're in the position where people who are influencing other people all around the world on a daily basis are driving past the front of this church building. And they're selling stuff to people in China and they're buying stuff from people in, in Latin America and they're traveling and interacting with all these people for different major corporations and vendors and they drive past the front of this building and we're hoping to influence them so that everyone would be looking for Jesus. And yet, here, when they come and they say to Jesus, everyone is looking for you. What is embedded in that statement is everyone is looking for you to fix their problems. And we couldn't find you. And so get back to town because a crowd of people is waiting and they have your to-do list for today written for you, Jesus. And so when we look at this through a spiritual context, we see everyone wants to use Jesus for their purposes. The disciples are excited that the crowd is excited because they're part of something important. The crowd is excited to get healing and the demon is excited because he's misdirecting everyone. Let's look through one more window, the literary context of Mark. This doesn't take much time and you could dig into it more on your own, but think about two things that happened in the book of Mark that shed light on this story. The first one is Jesus' baptism and his wilderness stay for 40 days. Because the wilderness is a place where people face death. And they ask, what does this all mean? When Jesus was baptized, he did a pre-enactment of his death, burial, and resurrection. He goes under the water into darkness. And he comes up with new purpose and mission given by the Holy Spirit, an identity spoken by the Father, and the Holy Spirit throws him into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan for 40 days. We learn from other gospel accounts that while he was out there, one of the temptations that the, the, the demon, Satan, tried to use on Jesus was tempt him to turn the rocks into bread. And boy, are there a lot of rocks in the Galilean wilderness. Jesus had rocks that looked like ciabatta. He had rocks that looked like English muffins. He had every kind of bread imaginable at his disposal. I think in this picture he's even looking at one. There's one that looks like a dinner roll <laughs> right in the front center of that painting. And it looks kind of like Jesus is looking at it and thinking, I could make you tasty. It's in his baptism and his wilderness wandering that Jesus faces death and he faces 
uh, these dark powers in the wilderness. The Jews had a lot of writings in this time in history where they believed that the wilderness belonged to demons. And I won't go into this too deeply right now, but this plays off of the Exodus story as they're wandering through the wilderness. God had said to the Pharaoh in Egypt, let my people go out into the wilderness where they can worship me. And for the Egyptians, that probably sounded like, what, he's some demon goat god out in the wilderness. And the Jewish people wrote about this kind of thing, that out here in the wild places is where demons haunted the land. And here's Jesus thrown by the Spirit out there in the wilderness to face his demons. Okay? And he's doing this both as a reflection on the Jewish story and their exodus, and it's a precursor in Mark's gospel to his death. Jesus is facing his purpose in this prayer moment in Mark 1. There are overtones of the passion story in these verses. Let me read this to you again. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place. Where else in all of the Gospels do you hear that language echoed? Very early in the morning. I'll give you a clue. If you were reading Mark 16, you would read, Very early on the first day of the week. And it's when the women go to the tomb to find Jesus' dead, cold body. But it's not what they find when they arrive. And he spent all Sabbath day working and being pushed around some by all these questions and desires. And he's doing the work of God. He's not going to be led astray by the demonic influence. But he's in the, in the third shift of the night now praying and listening to God to see whether or not this is God's purpose for the next day. And you think about it. If Sabbath day is over and he's praying until dawn the next morning, what day of the week is it? It's Sunday. And the sun is coming up. It's a precursor to the resurrection story. And where is Jesus found in this moment when Mark's literary context is mapping his future story over his present problem? He's in a place where he's listening to God and waiting for the sun to rise. Mark is driving you and me to a place of prayer even in the midst of our distractions to listen to God. And I guess I would just like to say a few practical things about it because we want to be with Jesus in this moment. We want to be like him. There's a lot we could do about this. How to do it, what would be the practices? But let me suggest this. We often think that prayer is all about talking to God. You've probably even been told a definition of prayer. It's simply talking to God. And people meant well when they said that. They didn't want you to feel like your prayers had to be some holy language like, you know, revered Father, you know, bless us thine children and using thous and thys and all. They wanted you to know it's just talking to God. So just say what's on your heart. Okay, and that's mostly true, but prayer is really not about talking to God. Prayer is listening to God. And you use a few words to prompt the conversation. And then you pay attention. 
Jesus in the wilderness probably prayed the prayers that he knew from his Bible, prayers like Psalm 1 and all of the other Psalms, and he would have prayed words like this, blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of God, on his law he meditates day and night. And then Jesus might have sat there and thought, what is it like to meditate day and night on the word of God? And he sat there through the night listening and thinking about it. Your posture matters. You know, uh, finding a comfortable place to sit, finding a comfortable place where you can breathe, having a setting where you can have a few minutes, maybe five minutes without distraction. Turn the phone all the way off. Drink your cup of coffee and enjoy it and then set it aside. Use the restroom. Go and sit in a place where for five minutes you'll be undisturbed. Pray a short prayer to God and listen and think about, God, what is it that you've sent me on for today? And watch and see if he doesn't do some surprising things. There's so much more about this that we could talk about together, but if you take away one thing, take away this. Prayer is the heart of Christian spirituality because it's the attention that the soul gives to God. A lot of people think that the heart of Christian formation and becoming like Jesus is going to church. It's not. A lot of people think it's singing and, and, t and telling God things. It's very close, but it's not. The heart and the center of Christian formation is prayer that listens to God, especially after days when the enemy has sunk these accusations deep into your heart and told you you're rotten and you're no good and you'll never make it. So on the day that you feel like you're failing as a grandparent, on the day that you can't seem to sell any more accounts, in the moments whenever you're facing a personal sin that's so deep and so sinister, you just know that you're being influenced from the pit of hell and you want to be influenced by the heights of heaven. We, as the people of God, have to find some ways to face death head-on like Jesus does from a lonely vantage point and not be distracted by everybody needs you to be. No. There's one need. God needs your attention, and we can do it together. Today, let's stand and let's sing out a prayer to God. And if you would like to join us in prayer at the front with our elders, we'll have a few elders also in the back. They would love to welcome you into this journey of listening and praying to our Father. Let's sing out together. Thank you for the